Hello everyone. For those of you that like sipping now and again, you're really going to enjoy this episode, for we are diving into the heartland of some of South Africa's finest and trademark wine. But before we start, please consider following my podcast on Instagram at Scales Podcasting, following the podcast on Anchor, supporting the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash stpt, or just looking at the website at thatjungle.wordpress.com. And without further ado, welcome to Scales, Tales, Plants and Trails, one-stop shop for all things nature, hiking, and just about everything in between. Today, as I said, we are diving into one of the heartlands of South Africa's wine, Stellenbosch. Heartland of wine, you say? Well, actually, this is a place where the Pinotage wine was created in 1925, and almost purely by accident, as a cross between the Pinot Noir and Sinsort, which was formerly known as Hermitage, which basically created the portmanteau name. Stellenbosch is a wine farming town that also happens to be home of one of South Africa's largest research universities, which is actually where I'm studying. If you look out anywhere from campus, all you'll see is either mountains or winelands, or winelands on mountains, which seems to be quite commonplace as things get cramped. But luckily for you guys, we're not going to be focusing too much on the wine because there's not really much to be found there apart from grapes and arid soil. There's much more to be found in the mountains and the rich botanical garden that lies on the centre of campus. In fact, there's actually a nature reserve right outside of the campus as well, as well as one a bit further away tucked between the mountains. We'll start there, at Yonkers Hook Nature Reserve. Taking just a short drive from the Stellenbosch campus, you'll find small gates leading into what seems to be a huge mountain valley. That is a reserve, 110 square kilometres of undisturbed feinbos, hiking trails and waterfalls. There's a huge variety of things to do there, mostly mountain biking or hiking, which actually isn't that much of a variety, but there's several hiking routes that you can do, for the reserve is a huge 110 square kilometers, but most of that is fairly inaccessible to your day-to-day -day hiker. After paying a reasonable conservation fee of 50 rand, or about $3, you have open access to a whole park from 7 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock in the afternoon. On the day we went, we decided to do the waterfall route. This is one of the shortest and most rewarding hikes in the nature reserve, for quite a lot of the other routes are 10 to 15 kilometers, if not more, whereas this one is just a short little 7. You just have to factor in the 10 kilometer round trip on the dirt road to get there, which is honestly incredibly bumpy. Do not even attempt to do that in low cars, we saw a few people do it, but whether the undercarriage was intact remains to be seen. So at the end of the U-shaped dirt road, there's a little, just sort of engraving into into the Feinbos, which is rich. There's a lot of proteas, huge bushes, it's absolutely green. The hills are coated in plants. Like, it's it's a grassland, but shrubbery. That's the best way I have to describe it. And from there, this is a waterfall route. As mentioned before, this is a short and rewarding hike that takes you to some absolutely breathtaking scenery in the waterfalls. The first of which is about a kilometer down the dirt track. There's a little bit of clambering here and there, but not truly clambering, just, you know, a bit of uphill, but a downhill. There's lots of nice stilts and things put in, so the path is intact to the whole way. You don't really have to bundu bash over anything. And there's wonderful famous to be found along the way. One of the most char charismatic creatures that lives there is a southern rock agama, or agama atra. A usually dull lizard, with absolutely beautiful males. They're bright blue, and they tend to do push-ups to display dominance. They're fairly trusting of people, you can get pretty close, sometimes close enough to catch them. But when disturbed, they run like Usain Bolt. They can move basically straight uphill at a pace you wouldn't... Like, up a rock ledge, just straight. They don't even care. 
it could be going up, going down, those things move. And it's always fun to watch them do those push-ups. They'd put most grown men to shame. But along the route you go, it's dirt, it's dirt, it's dirt, there's Fainboss here, and to your left in the valley is a Fainboss River. I say Fainboss River, it's a tannin-stained red river, incredibly cold, incredibly quick-moving water, but it's delicious. I didn't even take water with me, I just bought a bottle and filled it up. It is probably advisable to disinfect it, we didn't, I didn't get sick, but you never know when Bilharzia might strike. It's not very well established in South Africa yet, but you don't really want to take that chance. So after about a kilometre, there's a little sandy turn-off to the right, and about a hundred metres down there is the first waterfall. It's entrenched in a, in a hill. It's a small, open, almost theatre, with a pool at the bottom and a waterfall at the back. There's lots of dripping water along the way as well, along the walls, on the roof, on the ceiling. Along these drip walls is a huge amount of moss and ferns, and apparently, apparently in summer you can even find ghost frogs cracked in there, which are often pretty rare as are most of the ghost frogs on the Cape Peninsula. I believe the ones there are actually endangered as well. They lay their eggs in the fast-flowing streams and the tadpoles attach themselves to a side to feed on algae using big sucking mouths, and they take a whole two years to mature, which is vastly different from most frogs and clawed frogs, also known as platanas, that you find in the region. But the first waterfall is nice, but there's more to be seen. If you go around the side, after clambering across some rocks, you can climb up to an upper waterfall, which is still part of the first waterfall, I guess, on the map. Which is also nice, there's another pool, there's more plants, but climbing even higher takes you to an absolutely breathtaking view, where the water is tumbling down the mountain into the first pool at the very top. There's a lot of irises, there's more ferns, there's even tree ferns up there, which is pretty amazing. And it's just absolutely stunning, if you are a young, fit person, or older and fit, and you trust yourself with a little bit of mild rock climbing, I would highly recommend checking it out. It's serene, it is peaceful, and it's generally untouched by man apart from a single orange peel that we found. Shame on you, orange burglar, or orange bandit, rather. After that, we climbed down again, and on our way we went. Where to, you might ask? Well, there's not just one waterfall on the waterfall route. Are you mad? There's a second one. So, a bit more hiking we did. This one was about 2 kilometers further down the track. This is only about a 7 kilometer round trip. It's short and easy. For after a while you get to a shady, undergrown, overgrown, lush forested area. This isn't very usual in the Fainboss environment where trees are pretty rare and usually occur in isolated patches. After shade there's a little bit of a rock climb and you're sort of on your way to the second waterfall. For there's not really much of a route there. Then it's just basically water you have to walk through, or if you're very careful, there's rocks you can scramble over. It's an awesome experience to walk through the water, even though it is freezing cold. But, more rock walls, more moss, it's rewarding. And after about 100, 150 meters of clambering through the water, across rocks, up and down, you present yourself in front of the second waterfall. While not as majestic at the first, this one really rumbles. It's not as pretty, but it has the power behind it. I actually ended up under the flow of this waterfall, I swam over, climbed under it, and, and within about 30 seconds I had brain freeze. It's absolutely numbingly cold, it's absolutely insane that the frogs have adapted to live in water that is so cold, it's probably under 15 degrees, maybe even 10, but it's delicious, it's cold, and it's so refreshing on a warm day like it was. And on the way back we found something I completely missed on the way there. Sundews. 
Those who have been around this podcast for a while know I absolutely adore my sundews, the little carnivorous plants, of which South Africa has quite a few of the 200 species in the world. I think we have about 30, most of which are on the Cape Peninsula. Today we found the most common one, the Drosera trinavia, also known as a small sundew because it is absolutely minuscule, usually measuring under 2 centimeters in diameter, but we were lucky enough to see the flowers. These were very light violets in colour, and mounted only a few centimetres above the plants, which themselves were mostly jutting out of sheer rock faces that happened to have a bit of seepage in them. For these are more of the wet area sundews that also grow in winter, whereas in summer they go dormant again, waiting for the coolest climates to allow them to grow nicely. I am absolutely sputtering this, but I am excited. Sundews are great. And where you find them, you find a lot of them. Some patches had over 50 plants, some had a 100. Some were only a few millimetres across, and the biggest we found was about one and a half centimetres. This is also an unusual population, because some of the plants lack the pigment that makes them red in the bright sun, which is quite common of sundews. When they're really happy, when they're getting enough sun, they go a really deep blood-red colour. And if they're not getting enough sun, they usually go greenish, which isn't a bad thing. They just look absolutely damn awesome when they're blood-red. I mean, blood-red carnivorous plants, who can argue with that? Well, it's more of a ruby than a blood, but... You get the point. Another interesting inhabitant around the pools was a multicellular algae. I thought it was an aquatic plant at first, for it looked a lot like a sort of grassy, strandy sort of thing, but upon closer inspection you could actually see it was large clumps of algae, banded together to make long strands that could withstand the absolute sheer power of the streams. This was incredibly cool. I actually put these on our naturalist, but there's been no response yet. I guess this sort of algae thing is not as common as... It's not, it's not something a lot of people know about. If there's any algae experts out there, I'd love to know what it is. Then, after that second waterfall, we head back. We find more agamas, more sundews, some absolutely stunning flowers, such as false peas, which are quite funny. They're a member of the pea family, but they form a sort of shrubby bit. They've got two big elephant ear petals, and they've got a bit sticking out the front with all these frilly little tendrils. It almost looks like a paintbrush right on front, which is how I distinguish them and pollinating them as a whole lot of carpenter bees. I think these are Xylocoptera caphra, or the banded carpenter bee. The males are big golden yellow, they're incredibly fuzzy, but the females are huge. They're black, with the two distinct bands across their back, which are also yellow, which is how they get their name, the banded carpenter bee. And they are tremendous insects, probably four centimeters long. They make a tremendous droning noise. So you don't really want to be close to them, it feels terrifying, it's like you have a helicopter landing on top of you, but nonetheless it's an amazing thing to see these things swarming around and pollinating. It's not something you see in suburbia as much, because they usually need some place to lay their net, oh, lay their nest, lay their eggs. And as the name carpenter bee suggests, they often bore into wood, or stems of aloes or similar plants, to make their burrows, and may lay their eggs there with a whole supply of pollen for the larvae to feed on. They don't form nests like most honeybees and so on, or, sorry, communal nests. So these are more like the solitary bumblebees and so on that you find elsewhere. Sadly, that was the end of my interesting finds for the day. But fret not. About a week later, I went back to Stellenbosch to go work on a project with a friend. And during a bit of a break, we decided to go visit Jan Marais, that little nature reserve just outside of campus I told you about earlier. I'd actually never been there before. I was only on campus for a few months before lockdown happened, and I never got the chance to go. So we went exploring, and we were immediately amazed. Those carpenter bees I mentioned just now, Xylocopa caphra, were everywhere. With a huge variety of plants in such a tiny space, they were just—they were dozens of bees. It's absolutely insane how 
much of an effect a small nature reserve can have. The first few hundred meters of reserve is a somewhat disturbed area, as they call it. This is a few hectares, about three or four out of the whole 23, that has been purposefully planted to display the absolute diversity that we find in the Feinbos ecoregion in South Africa. So this is where we found all those bees initially. They are having an absolute feast with more of those false pea flowers. Some of those bushes were two or three meters tall, far outside of my reach, but the bees had no problem. It sounded like a mini army of attack helicopters, but it was a spectacle to see nonetheless. Past that was just undisturbed Feinbos. There were two main types there, Swatland and Swatland Renostelfeld. Renostelfeld probably named after rhinos, which is Renostel in Afrikaans which sadly are not found here anymore. The largest animal we saw that day was a chreisbok, or a greybuck, just by the gate, which was honestly shocking. It's very generally very secretive animals, but there it was a few meters away from us in the bush. That was absolutely a highlight. Apart from that, we went on a walk. We just went around and enjoyed the feinbos. Another cool thing we found was a bonnet orchid. In South Africa, we have over 200 species of orchids. The vast majority of them are terrestrial. Most of the orchids we keep at home and at supermarkets and so on are epiphytic, so they're usually mounted on things, they don't need as much water, and they're less picky about their environment, whereas terrestrial orchids are very reliant on the soil, and thus are much harder to grow, and much more, sort of, endemized to certain areas. Luckily, the bonnet orchid is very widespread, and another common orchid seen around is the Dysa, Dysa uniflora. It's a trademark cape flower, giant red orchid. Those are found around Table Mountain. They're also actually found in Yonkers Hook but obviously we didn't see any here now, they only flowered in February. Unfortunately, we also found a lot of broken glass. Jan Moray is an open nature reserve, so obviously some people came here, had a drink, couldn't be bothered to find a bin, which are, there are bins scattered around the reserve, so they just smashed their bottle there and left it. This is quite a problem since broken glass can cause wildfires due to its effect as a magnifying glass, and these Feinbos areas are dry. They rely on periodic fires for proper seed dispersal, but if they happen too frequently it can cause severe damage to the ecosystem, as well as to the surrounding properties. So, having a camera bag with me, we shoved all the glass in there and removed it at the end. That was the least we can do for a nature reserve. But enough of the negativity, we found a whole lot of cool stuff. There were proteas everywhere. Proteas are one of the big five families in the Feinbos floristic region. Just to cap it off, it's proteas, ericas, daisies, peas, and restionaceae. So proteas are the biggest of the lot. I think the biggest is the silver tree, which can grow up to 12 meters tall, which is actually a type of protea. It's endangered, but really cool to see around Kirstenbosch. That's not the focus. We found a, ver a variety of proteas. There's some dry king proteas, South Africa's national flower from last year's season, and a few more that were growing now. They're huge, up to 30 centimeters in diameter, but often smaller. They were often boiled down for sugar back in the day. Also as a herbal remedy, you quite often see ants scurrying around in them for that sweet, sweet nectar. There were also pincushions, an absolutely gorgeous plant that is widely cultivated, for it looks like a pincushion. It's a scrumbly bunch in the middle with a whole bunch of petals coming out. Well, not petals, it's more like rods with a little ball on the end. They make for amazing photography subjects. If you go visit areas with pincushions, highly recommend taking close-up shots of them. They were also a favorite of those carpenter bees. And it wasn't just bees we found there invertebrate-wise. There was a giant locust, which was quite, quite surprising to see so high up in a bush you'd usually think they're on the ground, as well as a giant stink bug and some cool ants. The first of which were quite common, but still awesome to see, crazy ants. Anaproleprus custiodens. 
and just as the name suggests, when disturbed, these guys go nuts. Your feet are not safe, your shins are not safe. They will bite you, they spray you with formic acid, which is worse than it sounds. It's a little bit of a hot burning sensation that can take you off guard, but it doesn't really cause any harm. If you see a whole load of little black ants scurrying around on the ground in South Africa, best avoid them, especially in dry areas. The other ones we saw were hot rod ants, which actually are even faster than the crazy ants, hence the name. My friend was a bit surprised, like, these guys are just moving slowly. And then later we saw one scurrying at about a meter per second. Now this is an ant that is under a centimeter long. These are smaller seed foragers that have small colonies under rocks, and they actually quite often form gamma colonies. Gamma-gates are basically ants that have workers that become queens after mating with males, whereas most ants have a dedicated caste of queens. It's quite an unusual thing and not fully understood. We have a colony at home that's still managing to grow, and we don't even know which one the queen is. But those guys fly around. During the day they just go and collect seeds, and it's believed either to just be sort of like an anti-predation mechanism or it helps them avoid the hot baked sand in the summer. And then, as all good things do, this had to come to an end because there was more work waiting for us. Funnily enough, it was a biology project that interrupted our biology field trip. But, again, fret not. The next day, I had an important job to do. I wanted to go document the animals at the Stellenbosch University Botanical Garden. But first of all, let's get a little bit of context about the Stellenbosch University Botanical Garden. First of all, it is my f entire favourite place on campus, more so than my own bed, so that is saying something. And it's only 3 hectares, it's absolutely tiny as far as gardens go. But opened in 1921, it is the oldest botanical garden in South Africa. The whole 50 million people, whatever, this whole giant country, it's the oldest botanical garden in it. It was started as just a sort of growing space for one of the professors, and ev eventually it became a whole garden. Nowadays, it's incredibly diverse. It has so many biomes represented, from forested, there's bamboo, there's redwood, there's arid areas with cacti, there's a herb garden, there's two arid houses that, that contain giant collections of succulents, stone plants, cacti, all sorts of other weird stuff that I have absolutely no clue about. I'm sorry, it's not really my interest. There's also a greenhouse, which is more down my alley, which has my favourite animals at the garden, the green spot puffers. They're actually from Asia, but they're kept in a pond there in the tropical conditions, and they love it. I feed them snails when I have spare time. They absolutely adore snails. They will fight for them. There's four snails, and they will brawl. Four snails? There's four pufferfish. They will brawl over snails. If it's a little snail, they'll crush it and eat the insides. If it's a big snail, they'll just dive headfirst and chomp out. They don't even bother with the rest. But also in that greenhouse, there's a whole bunch of cool things, such as nepenthes, or tropical pitcher plants. There's orchids, there's a vanilla orchid, there's some ground peppery stuff I can't remember the name of, but it's actually used as a pepper Madagascar. It's little red pods that form on the ground, and then you open up this, the pulp, it's sort of sweet, I guess, and the seeds are very peppery. I ate about six of them, and my throat was on fire for 15 minutes. I cannot wait to do it again. But anyway, I went there with a very old camera, a 2007 Canon 40D, an even older 50mm lens, also referred to as the Nifty 50, and a focus ring set that my dad got at a pharmacy in the 90s, back when pharmacies sold photographic equipment. Back in the day. But anyway, it was amazing. With focus rings, you can get some amazing shots of insects as small as small ants. But why start there? 
First I asked one of the garden workers at Bonacale, absolutely stand-up guy, if you ever visit the gardens, which I highly recommend doing, entry is under a dollar, wink wink, then go find him, give him a shout, he is the friendliest dude you'll ever meet. But anyway, I started off by asking where I could find a chameleon, and he took me to the back of the garden, right by the currently closed entrance, to some restio nese, where the chameleons love to hang out in the sun, but also they're easy to spot. Restio nese is basically bamboo, but smaller and in bunches. Well, that's how it looks. It's more grassy than anything, but chameleons stick out like a sore thumb, because those stems are under a centimeter thick, so you see a big blob. Even if it's a green blob, you know the chameleon is there. He found one within 30 seconds. I left him be and went on with my day. The first other insects I found were in the tropical house, where I found some black sugar ants, which are actually sort of invasive. They're not invasive, they're introduced, but they don't create such a hammering on the local populations of ants, such as the invasive Argentine ants do. These were actually on these big dragon-like orchids, these big white fleshy orchid stems. They were found faring up and down there, so I'm wondering if they weren't trying to get nectar out of the thing. But that's the only real animal I found inside the tropical house. The next I found were pond skimmers. There's quite a few ponds in the garden. It's one of my favorite things about it. And where there's ponds, there are pond skimmers. They're part of a tribe, Garini. I'm guessing spe identifying these things is just an absolute pain, because they are small, they are fast, and the features must be so minute that it's basically impossible to identify by the native eye. The next animal that I found that sat still long enough for me to pho photograph it was a red-veined drop-winged dragonfly, an absolutely stunning creature, and it's an absolute treat when one sits down long enough for you to take several photos of it. These are named drop-wings because their wings are, as the name suggests, dropped down in front of them and it's red veins, so the body was orange, the wings were orange, or I have found absolute, just pure ruby red dragonflies before in the garden. And when, again, it sat down for me, and lovely photos. And just by the way, if you'd like to see some of these photos, go check out my iNaturalist profile at hendre underscore that jungle. The next insect I managed to find was a honeybee, Apis mellifera, the bumbly buggers we all know and love so much. I saw these investigating just about every flower, but they were particularly fond of ericas, which are generally a long, tube-like flower. These are pretty good for pollination in general, but sometimes cut corners by just sort of chewing through the flower to get to the nectar, instead of just pollinating it straight up the hard way like a lot of smaller insects do. But we can't really knock them that hard, we're reliant on them for so much of our food. But yeah, they're everywhere, all over the place, and all the flowers just bumbling around doing their job, and it was very cute to see them. It was pretty easy to get photos of them with so many of them. It's just difficult because they keep moving around so much, but you know what, you take what you can get. And also, while looking for honeybees, I felt something crawling on my leg, which usually is a really disconcerting thing to think about, but it was pretty small, so I checked it out. Turns out, it was an ant, but not just any ant. It was a twig ant, named so because I quite often live in twigs, and also they look like twigs, they're incredibly small and long and slender. This one was for black slender ant, Tetraponera clipiata, which is actually usually found in trees, but I was in grass, so it was a bit of an odd find to get me there, but you know what, it was cool. I had to look around the nearby trees and I actually found more of them. Finding colonies of these is relatively rare, as I quite often live in little knot holes and so on far up outside of human reach. But occasionally they also live in ground-dwelling plants as well, especially irises for some reason. Apparently they're like living in the stems or leaves, which is pretty cool. 
Immediately afterwards, I found one of the larger inhabitants of the garden, the Cape River Frog, Amitia fuscagula. I'm terrible with my Latin pronunciation, please don't kill me. These were everywhere, in every pond as well. These are a sort of mottled green blackish frog with a distinctive line down their head. I've actually found yellow ones in there before, in one of the bonsai ponds. But you know, that might have been more of an exception than the rule. Most of them are greenish, fairly skittish. They usually sit just around the edges, on logs, on rocks and so on. And the moment you disturb them, they go flying in. Sometimes you don't even see them until they jump into the water. They're incredibly well camouflaged. And as a counterpart to these frogs, I also found African clawed frogs, or Xenopus lavis. We call these platanas here. Plat being flat, I don't know what anas means, but these are a fairly flat frog, with very, very well-developed back legs, little front legs, and eyes mounted on top of their head. I believe these are pretty much fully aquatic, not really leaving water at all. This species specifically is not invasive, it comes elsewhere in South Africa, or comes from other areas in South Africa but it spread quite well in man-made dams, and has sort of pushed out the indigenous species to the Cape Xenopus gilli, or the Cape Clawed Frog, which is smaller and tends to inhabit more Feinbos rivers, as so those of a tannin-stained, fast-moving general rivers and pools there, but the African Clawed Frog is fairly larger and tends to prey on their tadpoles and so on, so it's quite a threat, but it's relatively mediated. After investigating the pond thoroughly and catching one of the platanas for photographic purposes, since it's almost impossible to see them, well you can see them in the water but it's usually dark and shaded and the camera has a hard time, so I just grabbed a small net, netted one out quickly, took some photos and returned him home ASAP. After which I continued looking in the trees for ants, upon which I found one of the most common tree dwelling, or more commonly stated as arboreal, that's a more scientifically correct term, one of the more typically arboreal ants, Chromatogaster. These are incredibly difficult to identify. These are small little black ants, and so this was probably Chromatogaster peringuinae. These are found worldwide in a range of colors from reds, blacks, browns, oranges, and yellows. These were purely black and inhabited the trees. They have... Why they, I don't actually know why they're called cocktail ants. They have a heart-shaped gaster, which is a part at the back of the body, which they wave up in the air. Maybe it's because they spray you with a formic acid cocktail. I don't know. But usually that sort of shaking is a warning behavior. They occasionally make cotton nests in bushes and trees, where if disturbed, thousands of ants swarm out in seconds, all just waving their gaster as a way to say, go away, we will spray you. Another less fun thing I found was a wasp. But not just like your sort of normal going around the environment wasp, this was a European paper wasp, Polistes dominula. These are introduced to South Africa, this is not Europe, European paper wasp. I found these scattered around the garden, quite a lot of them were pollinating flowers, especially those of the aloes for some reason, because they are very high off the ground. I believe it was aloes, it's the closest thing I know, it's probably about one and a half to two meters in the air and they'd quite often be fun bumbling around those with the bumblebees so it's even a snail all the way up there so it went on quite an adventure to get the top of this thing and it's just sort of wedged in there between the very narrow almost tuba shaped flowers that unfortunately is not the end of the invasives in the main lily pond which the lilies are starting to open now or the lotuses they're absolutely gorgeous and probably one of the highlights of the garden for most visitors there are mosquito fish, or Gambusia affinis. These are introduced from the Americas, primarily as an effort to try and eat mosquito larvae. As the name suggests, mosquito fish 
Unfortunately, they didn't quite live up to their moniker, preferring to eat the eggs, eyes, and offspring of other species, and generally other crustaceans over mosquito larvae, most likely because mozzie larvae are an absolute bugger to catch, and not present in such high quantities in most water bodies. Because these get out, it happens, they're live bearers, they have absolute tons of babies, they're very difficult to get rid of, and it's an ongoing problem in South Africa. But around this pond are more dragonflies, I absolutely adore it, you see them flitting around, spinning around. There's also a Cape Julia skimmer, or Orthotrum julia capicola, which was a gorgeous chestnut brown dragonfly, but unfortunately this one is a bit more skittish so I couldn't get very good photos of it. Also, in some of the giant iris plants, of which there were many, there's a lot of them in the Cape, there's some nice white ones, this was a giant yellow one that had a wood chafer in it. It's a little black beetle-like bug with lots of white spots, and I'm not too sure if they're introduced, but if you look in an iris, or in a bush of irises, there's usually at least one in there. And of course, as is in the rest of Stellenbosch, where carpenter bees busy going around their business, especially in the peas. All my photos of carpenter bees are in peas. They absolutely love them. Maybe it's because... Maybe they use buzz pollination, which is a special mechanism which pl flowers use to have specialist pollinators such as these bigger bees that vibrate in a certain pattern to allow the plant to unlock its nectar. So this means the plant guarantees that the pollinators are going to go back to other similar buzz-pollinated flowers and you have a high success of pollination. And so I went around the garden on and on. You can't believe how much you can walk around a three hectare garden. For example, in the bonsai area, which is already amazing. Several family estates have entrusted the garden with their bonsais after their growers passed away, and these are maintained by the garden as a volunteer organization that continues growing them and shaping them in a fashion that is suitable and nice. But at the moment, in that little nice shaded area, there's also a collection of winter bulbs, personally out of the curator Donovan Kirkwood's personal collection, and they are gorgeous. There are a lot of flowers called lacanalias, or violkis, after, I think it's violins? But yes, these form these are winter growing bulbs. So in summer they are completely dormant. When they are cultivated, you basically leave them outside, they get watered down again by the rain, and you leave them be. Come winter rainfall, these things just spring into life, they grow incredibly fast, and they deliver some of the most gorgeous flowers the Fainbos has to offer. The Lacanalias come in all sorts of colours. There are white ones with black spots, there are yellow ones, there are white and pink ones, there are dozens of species, and even various regional forms exist. I mean, that's quite common for plants and animals, but especially flowers, for them to look different depending on where you go. There were also Watsonias, which are one of the most iconic Fainbos plants. They grow quite tall and they have gorgeous flowers. They had some white ones and some pink ones. And, I mean, they come in all colours. You even get blue ones in some of the mountains. It's just stunning. There's orchids, some of those terrestrial orchids I talked about earlier. They're treated the same as the rest, and they grow. They grow incredibly big. They look like aliens, almost. I don't know what the name is of those ones, unfortunately. I missed it. But it's worth visiting in winter just for that alone. And that's also a lot of what you see at West Coast National Park, something I may talk about in a future episode. Unfortunately, next to our bonsai garden is an old church, which isn't bad because it's a church. It's just unfortunately bad because they feed stray cats there. If you go behind the bonsai area, there's often a white and black cat that sort of darts itself into a pipe and hangs there, which probably explains why I didn't find any small mammals at all, despite the absolute dense bushing and growth. You'd think there would be mice or something where there's an absolute 
richness. I'm repeating myself here. But there are no mice, most likely due to these feral cats, at least three or four of them that live there and are fed by the church and stay in the area. And they probably also eat the chameleons, which is a bit of a problem. But we can't be so down. I found something amazing at the garden. A cape terrapin. Pelomedusa galeata. Something I've seen in photos, but unfortunately have not had the pleasure to look for before, or find before. And while I was looking at frogs, there's a huge commotion on the opposite bank of the pond, just a meter or so away. And I just see a turtle slide into the water from the undergrowth. I was absolutely awestruck. This thing was probably about 30 centimeters long, nose to tip. And I took a very horrible photo that is now an iNaturalist, but good enough for an identification, apparently. Which is cool, apparently it just showed up one day after a flood and it's been staying in one of the bigger ponds since. Maybe one day it would be good to pull it out of the water and just make sure it is a te proper Cape Terrapin and not an introduced species. Which are around from the pet trade, turtles are actually banned in South Africa without permits. But unfortunately that does not stop people who have a bit of money to spend and the unscrupulous importers who get them under the counter hand over a little brown envelope full of cash to the authorities and the whole thing is never spoken about again. But given the lack of coloration, it's probably a cape terrapin and it was an awe-inspiring experience to find one of those there. And it's not the only reptile. There's a chameleons, there's a turtle, and there's a cape skink, Trachylepis capensis. I found some of these before in the Tigerberg Nature Reserve, and it was, it was a pretty sizable animal. It's probably about 20 centimeters long, a chocolate brown color, an absolutely gorgeous creature, and very inquisitive. It was very tolerant to my presence in taking photos. The ones in the garden are a bit smaller, but they almost have a mosaic pattern of light tan lines running from nose to tail with darker brown lines in between, and those lines are almost tiled with lighter and darker speckles. These are all over the place. If a walkway is left alone for a while, they'll go and sit on the stones and go warm themselves up, and when someone runs past, they go scatter off again, and you can also see the males sort of sizing each other up now and again. They're incredibly cool, they're very, very funny to watch. Because if you sit at the end of a pathway, then you'll see them slowly making their way out, and when they think it's safe, they'll just go sit there. And you know what? They're super cute. But my favorite find of the day, by far, even better than the turtle, even better than the skinks, was another Cape Dwarf chameleon. I've never found a chameleon on my own accord before, so I went back to his rest area several times during the day and I couldn't find any. And then I got a handicap. I found a shedding chameleon. This guy was lovely in color. He was green, had oranges and reds and so on, but he was given away immediately by the bright gray flecks of skin that were all over his body. And luckily, he just basically climbed on my hand. I took some photos of him in the bush, and I tried to move some of the branches and he climbed on. So I took him for a little adventure. They have incredibly interesting feet. So it looks like they have two claws, but they actually still have the five digits that lizards have. Except three are fused on the one side and two are fused on the other to make two toes. Each of which is tipped with claws. They have an insanely strong grip. It's very difficult to pull them off, so you just sort of let them climb as they will and you gently coax them off if they start climbing up your arm, because you want to keep them by your hands. And after taking them around, taking a few photos, I placed them back gently, with much less shed, which luckily came off as he was moving around, so hopefully there's a lower chance for him to get predated. But all in all, that was an amazing day in the garden. This was just in a few hours. And honestly, there's more to be found. The day before I visited, they found a snake, which was likely a harmless brown house snake, but in South Africa, you can never be too certain. Don't go picking up snakes if you don't know what they are. That is a very good piece of advice. 
Just in general, keep your distance from snakes. Unless you're an expert or suicidal, but I take no responsibility for any injuries for picking up snakes, wrestling with lizards, etc., etc. I've spoken about this before. But all in all, Stellenbosch was incredible. It is one of the most biodiverse areas I've ever encountered, especially for a city or town with over 50,000 people in it. And again, for those of you who like wine, it is definitely worth a visit. For those of you who like animals, it is almost a must-visit if you come down to Cape Town in South Africa. It is amazing. There are lovely guest houses around. Yonkers Hook is an absolutely wonderful place to go for a day hike. Just make sure you have a car with a higher body than... Like, don't go there with a Ferrari. Don't go there with a little tiny four-seater vehicle. Go, go with something substantial so you don't bang it up on the trip around to the Yonkers Hook hiking trails. If you're really adventurous, you can take some of the longer trails of 15 to 17 kilometers. I have not done those yet, and you'll definitely hear about it when I do. But otherwise, thank you so much for tuning into my podcast. As mentioned earlier, please go follow my podcast page on Instagram at Scales Podcasting. Go visit my website at www.thatjungle.wordpress.com If you'd like to support the podcast financially and help me get better equipment, please go donate at www.patreon.com forward slash stpt. But otherwise, thanks so much for the listen, have a great day further, and until next time, Hendre signing out.